It's midnight in America, and this is the Hour of Decision. My name is Lou Moore, and welcome to my program, The Hour of Decision, on News for America at newsforamerica.org. Tonight, don't yawn, but the biggest danger to America is not our border issues. It's not fentanyl. It's not what's going on in the schools. It's not the transgender propaganda. It's not China. It's not Russia. It's not the war in the Mideast. And these things are all very important, and these are all topics we will be talking about on this show. But by far, the biggest danger to America is the amount of money our government is spending right now. About 33 years ago, a guy by the name of Ross Perot, remember that name? Heard that name? Ross Perot turned politics on its head. Uh, In 1991, at one point, he was getting almost 50% support among the general public with the Republicans and the Democrats with President George Bush, who had not very much earlier been at 90% approval because of the first Iraq war. George Bush and Bill Clinton, the upstart, young, controversial Democratic nominee, they were splitting the other half, the other 50%. Perot was at 50%. And yes, he was a billionaire, but he wasn't really even spending his money. But he had a populist revolt behind him. And the revolt was over government spending. Government spending in 1991, the debt in 1991, a pittance almost compared to what we are dealing with today. It's hard to believe, but things cycle around in politics like everything else. And I believe government spending is cycling back around as as a big political issue, and it needs to be because of the situation we are in today. And spending, uh, spending is, uh, it doesn't seem like it, but it is one of these issues where the elites are on one side and the public is on the other, and all the interest groups are on one side and the public without strong interest groups, without strong organization is on the other. It's kind of like the, in this sense, it's like the trifecta of populist issues I talk about in my book, Forerunner, the untold story of Ron Paul. The trifecta of populist issues that propelled Ron, that created all the energy around him, among a relatively small group of the populace, but the same energy, I argue in my book, that uh, galvanized around Donald Trump in 2016, that trifecta of issues was immigration, the trade issues, and endless wars, the entanglements that we have overseas. <clears throat> Those are populist issues because they were not there were not really large interest groups behind any one of those issues for the people. But yet the people, uh, you polled over and over again, you know, we're on the other side. We're on the other side of the elites. Well, spending is kind of like that too. And although everybody says they're against wasteful government spending, and the Republicans in particular have raised tons and tons and tons of money complaining about how much the Democrats want to spend, but in fact, 
the politicians don't do anything about this. A, a, a real tip-off, a real key to the fact that the powers that be, interest groups, want a bigger and bigger and bigger and more intrusive government spending more and more money, both Republicans and Democrats, at odds with the public. There is one difference, though. The public has some blame in this as well because the average voter doesn't want reckless spending. The average voter, voter doesn't want big deficits. But the average voter often does want a new bridge, uh, you know, by their house or a, a new school or a new this or that or a new program where they, don't, you know, to, uh, for the lunch, lunches for the kids or whatever, you know, whatever it is. And so uh, the public can be picked off uh, kind of one by one in this way, too, because while they don't like spending in the aggregate, they're often OK with it you know, as far as things that affect them directly. Speaking to somebody who is now on Social Security, I have to admit. But, uh, and, you know, they talk about that Congress spends too much money, but they want their congressman to, quote, bring home the bacon, unquote. So there is a problem, not just with the elites, but with, with all of us, to a degree, about government spending. And, yeah, there's no real lobby against it. You know, the government, the Democrats, ideologically, ph philosophically, they're always wanting new programs. They're always wanting the government to get, uh, you know, further and further into your life. But the, the Republicans are, are, are saying that they don't want that, yet, you know, they have their own programs, their own set of programs. A lot of times, you know, that's around the defense issue. Uh, you know, they have their own area where they want maybe more, maybe not more programs, but more spending. And, and the, uh, the Republican answer to the, uh, to, to, to the issue of getting too many interest groups against you when you want to cut spending was to just cut taxes, which is quite popular with just about everybody, without cutting the spending. And, you know, their argument was, well, if you keep the taxes high or if you raise taxes... That inhibits the growth of the economy, and that hurts tax revenues, and so you don't get ahead by raising taxes. You get ahead by cutting taxes. Well, that's true, but not if you just keep spending and spending and spending. The, the, there's no guarantee when you cut taxes that the added growth and the added tax revenues from that growth are going to make up for the amount of money you're spending, particularly when you spend more and more and more year after year after year, which is exactly what has happened over the last many, many, many years. So we've had nothing but unbalanced budgets, annual budgets, and uh, when a budget is unbalanced annually, uh, they call that a deficit, just to be clear. And the aggregate of all the money that... Uh, is included in these deficits year after year is the debt, the overall national debt. So if you, uh, and you know, I was back in Washington, D.C. I was a chief of staff for a congressman in the 1990s when allegedly for a couple of years there, the government, quote, balanced the budget, which didn't touch the debt, but supposedly meant that they didn't spend more money in those years uh, than they had you know, then they had the revenue to cover it, to pay for it. But that wasn't even true then because they don't count 
the fact that the government is taking current tax money and throwing it into Social Security. You know, there is no social, there is no real Social Security trust fund. I know there's Social Security taxes that are taken out of your paycheck if you're a working person. But anyway, it's all just thrown into the general pot, but yet it's accounted for differently. So there was really no balanced budget anytime even during the 90s. But it is true the deficits, the, de the, the real deficit was fairly minimal uh, during that time. But then there was Bush who got, in, who got elected in 2000. Then there was 9-11. There was Afghanistan. Then there was Iraq. Then there was Bush's prescription drug program, which was sold as a way to prevent the Democrats from putting in an even more prescription drug, expensive prescription drug program. And overall, with Bush, there was Karl Rove's grand plan to keep the Republicans in office forever. Uh, and his idea of doing that was co-opting a lot of Democrat issues. And so they championed more federal intrusion into education, and they championed the uh, a, a new prescription drug, a new and very expensive uh, prescription drug benefit. And then before Bush left, there was the first set of bailouts around the Great Recession, if you remember that, 2007-2008. So every, you know, getting anywhere close to a balanced budget went totally sideways in those, during those years. And then there was Obama. Obama didn't uh, get elected saying, I'm going to cut the budget and be a small government Democrat, for crying out loud. He was pulling the Democrats to a, a more radical, more socialistic position. Uh, he promised a fundamental transformation in America. And, you know, when the Democrat says that, we're talking more government, 100%. And that's certainly, that's certainly what we got. And, and, of course, that included a great big new program called Obamacare. And during Obama, we had uh, in, uh, in the media and in intellectual circles a sudden great concern about income inequality, which, you know, it was an issue. The middle class had been declining because of a lot, you know, because of what, what they did to industry in the United States, because big government, believe it or not, always makes the rich richer and everybody else poorer. That's really what happens uh, with big government. And along with this concern about income inequality, there was a new economic theory called modern monetary theory, the gist of which was cheaper. Spend as much money as you want. It's all good because we need to have the government spend more money. It's really important. And it was kind of the more modern version of Keynesian economics, if you've heard that term before, which was the rationale for FDR as New Deal and all of the spending he did, uh, even before we got into World War II and the, the real institutionalization of government uh, deficits and the government debt. So uh, then we had Trump, who didn't, you know, who promoted and achieved some pretty significant economic growth and growth in tax revenues as a result, but did not champion so much uh, balancing the budget. And then there was COVID. Then there was a whole bunch more in terms of bailouts and government spending. And a report just out today, hundreds of billions of dollars in misspending in the name of COVID relief, with the economy contracting at the same time with the lockouts and all that. 
And then there's Biden, who has retracted nothing. I mean, the, the government has grown 40 percent, the spending, 40 percent since 2019, not that long ago. And, uh, and so and we don't see the Democrats wanting to do anything about that. And we see the Republicans, as usual, talking. But then their proposal cut 1%, cut 1% of the budget was their proposal. That was ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And, uh, you know, we, we had a rebellion in the House over the leadership, a rebellion within the Republican conference in the House over the, the fact that McCarthy was being so weak with the Senate and with Biden over this issue of cutting back and, and retracting the government to something approximating the level that it was in 2019 when the effects of COVID hit. But, you know, that's a, a decided small minority within the Republican conference. You know, there, is, there wasn't a majority that, that uh, I mean, they, again, they're all talking, but that were, that were really ready to fight and shut down the government if necessary. I mean, I have no stomach for that, which is the kind of leverage they're going to have to use uh, to get government spending in anything approaching order. And, you know, they're talking $2 trillion, $2 trillion a year in deficits now, far as the eye can see. And with this large of a number, I mean, you know, what is that, $20 trillion? $20 trillion in 10 years? And plus, as usual... That's probably not even right. I mean, since September, we've added a trillion dollars to the deficit, to the debt, a deficit, uh, added deficit, adding to the debt, a trillion since September. I mean, my math is that's four months. So that would be three trillion, not two trillion, and as a deficit going forward. So, you know, I mean, this is craziness. This is so reckless. This is so irresponsible. And the fact that the Republicans cannot even figure out how to stand up and fight for half of the money that, that was expended uh, starting in 2019 with all the COVID and all that. And, uh, and, and so the government would only have grown 20 percent uh, than the government spending, you know, with a 20 percent cut. Yeah, 1%, like I said, a joke, not even helpful. So uh, so I'm going to stop for a second and talk a little mechanics about the, about all this. First of all, people say, well, you know, the government's always in debt. I mean, what's the big deal? You know, why should we care? We have a deficit every year. And basically, just about no matter how old you are now, I was talking about Franklin Roosevelt a minute ago, the president of the United States in the 1930s. No matter how old you are, you know, you've looked at government deficits year after year, your whole life. So, you know, what's the big deal? But, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the debt is the accumulation of deficits. And we haven't dealt with it at all for I mean, I don't know how long. I couldn't even cite when the last time was that we were paying down the national debt. It just keeps going up and up. And as I said, now it's going up at a stratospheric rate. But, but how would you deal with it? How would you deal with the deficit? This $2 trillion plus deficit we're dealing with right now. Well, you can raise taxes. Raising taxes, not popular. Raising taxes slows down the economy. 
You can lower spending. Oh my God, what an idea. But you make a lot of enemies in Washington, D.C. if you talk about reducing spending and get specific about it. Uh, you can cut services to lower the spending. That is certainly not popular, even though it's happening. If you talk to any senior uh, on Medicare right now, all kind of little games are going on. But uh, And Biden gets on TV and talks about how much money he's saving seniors on their prescription drugs. But that's not even what's happening. I mean, there, there is a stealth reduction of services going on right now in, in, that, uh, in that particular area. You can float bonds, which is what we do. I mean, uh, our, our, our whole, if you understand how the Federal Reserve works, something we're going to talk about in detail. I'm going to talk about with Joe Becker, good friend, economist, former staffer for Congressman Ron Paul. And we're going to be talking at length, a couple of episodes about the Federal Reserve, about monetary creation. and But basically... Uh, Money is created and backed by bonds from the Federal Reserve. The, the, the core amounts of money, I'm not going to get into mechanics now. Actually, every bank can create money because of fractional reserve banking and all that. We'll talk about that later. But the idea is, is that the bondholders back our currency, and, and when they're unhappy, that means that the Federal Reserve needs to pull back, raise interest rates, which tightens money and and pays the bondholders more money and gets more bond uh, bondholders into the system investing and then they loosen up the money again that's the idea but of course if you don't have enough bondholders to cover your debt you then have to get into what Obama's Obama's administration called quantitative easing quantitative easing that just means print money, print money out of absolutely nothing. And uh, that's been going on since the Obama administration, and it's going on big time right now because they're having more and more difficulty getting people to buy bonds because you need more bondholders or more investment in bonds when you're getting up to $2 trillion uh, in an annual deficit or more. You have to sell more bonds, but actually it's going the other way, and we'll explain that in a minute. Uh, they're getting and uh, and then there's one other thing: they sell bonds. Uh, bonds are not infinite. Uh, you know, you you buy a, a treasury for ten years or or whatever or a short term, and then they have to turn those bonds over because the bondholder gets the money after you know whenever the uh, the length of time expires. And uh, we're in a position now where I didn't get the exact statistics before I started recording this, but about $10 trillion of our astronomical debt is uh, going to be turn is turning over now. We have to sell more bonds just to keep covered the debt uh, that's already been accumulated without talking about the growth in that debt through annual deficits. So... This is getting to be more and more of a problem while we're being more and more reckless and doing less and less about it. So the, the countries who have predominated in buying our debt, Saudi Arabia, Japan, and China, and they're all pulling back, but particularly China, not our friend to begin with on a good day, and Saudi Arabia 
are, I mean, this is a real problem. That They are going to be investing less and less in us as uh, as they move forward with this counter to the dollar called the you know, you know the BRICS nations, so we you know we're squeezed there, and, and you know you know people don't realize this, and we've been running these deficits for so long. I remember when I was on a talk show during Ron Paul's campaign in 2008, and uh, we were arguing about the Iraq War, and I pointed out that, you know we're borrowing money from China to pay for our incursion in Iraq for our national security. Is there something wrong with that, maybe? And, of course, we're going to find out how wrong that was going forward as China becomes more and more of a problem. But but the deal was with China is we're going to tolerate the fact that we're buying tons and tons and tons and tons of stuff from China and becoming dependent on China for electronics, for medications, for a lot of other products. And so part of the deal was supposed to be that they would be soaking up our debt. And with Saudi Arabia, we were buying their oil. Of course, Trump helped uh, reverse to a degree that fact. Now Biden and I were back buying tons of imported oil. But uh, we were fixing the the problem of the uh, deficit with energy under Trump. But anyway... And then with Japan, it was the same deal as China, although, uh, you know, China be, has become far and away the leader as far as uh, is what was creating our trade deficit year after year. But, you know, Japan has been a part of that as well. So, but these countries are bailing. I mean, over time, they're more and more, they were, are going to be bailing on propping up our debt. And uh, that affects not just the fact that to make up for it, we have to print more money and the problems with that. But uh, it also affects something called our reserve currency status, which is, and most of you have probably heard of that. A lot of you know what that means. But basically, it means that uh, in foreign trade, that to the trades have to be denominated in dollars, which puts us has put us in a very key position. And this this comes out of the Bretton Woods Agreement at the end of World War II. And it's put us in a very key position and allowed us to keep running up bigger and bigger debts where other countries could not do that. And I remember flying into Panama back in, I think, 1999. I was on a Codel, part of a Codel, to look at the Panama Canal, which we gave to China. And uh, ostensibly, we gave it back to Panama, but really, we gave it to China. Yet another story for another day. And and there was a headline in the newspaper, I, you know, and at that time I was not too bad in my with uh, reading Spanish. And the IMF was squeezing Panama because they were going too far in debt to pay for their social security system. And the IMF was saying, well, you're going to have to cut the checks of these people, uh, cut the amount that you're paying them because you're getting farther and farther in debt. And, you know, you can't do that. Well, we've been able to do that because of our reserve currency status, but that's coming to an end with the fact that China, Russia, India, Brazil, and with other countries looking on fondly like Saudi Arabia, I mean, they're getting together to turn to change from the dollar being the denomination of trade between countries, but having gold be the denominator for that denomination. The, the substance, the uh, medium of exchange used for that. And uh, recalling another memory of mine, I was researching a project. I was at the University of Washington 
in Washington State in their engineering library and seeing uh, diagrams, blueprints of these refinery, uh, these refinery buildings, facilities. And I was saying, I don't know, oil refinery? These were gold refineries. Uh, Russia has a ton of gold, tons and tons of gold. And they're going to be in even a stronger position than they are now in their position, despite all of the sanctioning and supposedly that's been going on with them because of Ukraine, uh, they're in a great position if if trade again, as it was a long time ago, is denominated in gold. So my, my, my point here is uh, we are in big trouble. We're about ready to lose our reserve currency status. And then because countries, and I think a lot of countries are going to join this BRICS thing if they can, because... They see we're getting reckless, really, really, really reckless with the dollar. And uh, we're in serious trouble, serious trouble. But even more significant, I think, than the reserve currency status is just the fact that when you start printing too much money backed by nothing, backed uh, not by gold, not by silver, not by the confidence of investors, which is what Bonds are essentially a measurement of that. You are headed to a very bad thing called hyperinflation, where people, you know, first other nations lose confidence in the dollar, and then your own citizens start losing confidence in the dollar. And pretty soon uh, you're going to be like Germany in the 1920s, where, you know, they're getting marking pens out to mark new denominations on the currency because. The inflation was going up so fast, and, and and you know that's what inflation is. That there's a there was an argument about this when I was in college in the seventies. I can't even believe it. But inflation is is not the fact that people's wages are going up and it costs more money to buy bread. Th- those are effects. Inflation is when there is too much money, when too much money is being pumped into the system, not representing a growth in in the economy, and goods and services. And that's what happens when you just keep printing it. And we're printing more and more. The quantitative easing is going up and up. And and as I said, there's also a bind that the government is in because they have to roll over a whole lot of bonds this year. And and, and that's going to be ongoing in the future. And as uh, you know, as Steve Bannon likes to say, and Dave Bratt, an economist that's on his show frequently, you know, the law of large numbers. You know, we have to roll over half the debt, and the debt's $5 billion or $5 trillion, let's say. That's a lot of money. When the debt is $35 trillion, that's a hell of a lot of money. And when it's going up 2 to $3 trillion a year, you know, 10, 10 more years, I mean, it, it, it gets totally unmanageable. And something's going to have to give. Something will have to give. So this is dire. And it, it doesn't just, it's not just our reserve currency status. It's not just the threat of inflation per se, but all of the other cascading consequences of this, you know, threatening Social Security, which, you know, a lot of you probably not a big fan of Social Security, but it is a huge item of stability in a country that has a ton of baby boomers and an older and older population dependent upon it, many of the people dependent upon it uh, to live. That's very, destabil- that's very destabilizing. 
and and the and you know cutting cutting services in huge you know I mean in in, in huge blocks of money because it's an emergency now we have to cut the government uh, you know, it's not thoughtful it's very destabilizing you know if if it were to happen you know all at once you know the national security and two two big problems with our national security one is uh, being able to fund the military and i would argue that we are funding a whole lot more than we're getting with the military and the military is in too many countries and trying to do too many things but uh, with all these commitments then then what if they can't fund it at the levels necessary uh, for our defense and then there's the other the, the other angle of this is uh, enemies like china who we count on to fund part of our debt and to keep doing that, have more leverage. I mean, what are we going to do if they take Taiwan, which will take out almost half of our chip market for microchips and uh, impact all of Asia, all of the trade lanes through there and whatnot, all of our so-called allies over there? I mean, what are we going to do? And, uh, you know, we're going to hit from two angles. If if we're going to have a harder time maintaining a large military, and if our potential opponents we have a dependency on to be financing our government, there's going to be more pressure for immigration because there's going to be more pressure on big business to have cheaper labor to, do, you know, to lower the, you know, cut their costs because all across the economy, there's going to be jacked up interest rates. There's just no way around that. And that because to sell more bonds, they're going to have to raise interest rates. All economic activity in this country, in my opinion, is way too dependent on credit. And when credit's more expensive, it affects companies, it affects the supply chain, it affects wholesale activities. And then, of course, it affects the retail activities, like people that are no longer going to buy a house and all of the uh, individuals involved in that chain of events that, that causes a house to be built financed sold etc all of the societal ills that come from lower and lower home ownership rates same with cars to a lesser degree and all of these other consumer goods it just it's it is going to be a disaster for the economy all the way around so Ross Perot came forward as a champion of fiscal responsibility and warned about the the very dangers I'm talking to you about now back in the early 1990s. Who is going to come forward now to be the populist champion? Will it be Trump? It, it, it might be. But, but, you know, this has not been Trump's thing per se. All of these things that I'm worried about with this issue will be better, in my opinion, under Trump, uh, particularly if we can get the economy really humming again if we can if we can get energy independence again etc but i don't know we're certainly not going to get it from the legislative branch i mean there you know we have a real congress problem those of us who want to see big change and do not want the moneyed interests to be calling the tune and running lives and at the presidential level now again i refer to my own book forerunner Talking about the changes in technology that allowed uh, for people to rapidly, quickly organize, you know, using the internet and and go around the establishment parties, making the necessity of having a ton of TV ads 
you know, less relevant to elections, but this is pertained primarily to presidential elections because you can organize people and get people more interested in presidential elections in America than you can in school board elections or city council elections or, unfortunately, congressional elections. And so people that run for Congress are still in the main far too dependent on the big money uh, and there's different big money outlets that fund Democrats and Republicans, but they're all the elite and the establishment uh, agenda being pushed at the end of the day uh, behind these people. Uh, the people running for Congress uh, in the main are still terrified of having that kind of money cut off, and particularly if they're in any kind of a competitive district or, uh, you know, there's a threat of a primary uh, if you're not in a competitive uh, district uh, as far as the general election. So we said we have a problem there, and one of the ways it's reflected, one is, you know, the border. <laughs> They've done nothing about the border. They're, now they're kind of kind of talk about it, and, gee, we got to do something. You know, nothing's happened. They didn't build the wall. They didn't care. Republican Congress didn't build the wall. And, uh, the, you know, they want to fund Ukraine, and they're all about Ukraine. but And they're all about not spending too much money, except they keep doing it. And and we you, you're not going to see a big change in Congress. It's going to have to be very dynamic, forceful, executive power to reverse this situation in any kind of way uh, where America uh, doesn't go down the tubes. I mean, let's be frank about it. If the dollar goes down the tubes in the United States of America, the United States of America is following close behind. So uh, it's unclear if there really is a real champion for solvency, for fiscal responsibility, but there sure as hell needs to be when we are spending this kind of money so reckless and it's so wasteful. And, of course, government, government, spend, government spending isn't just, oh, gee, uh, it might cause inflation. Government spending means more government, and it means more tyranny. It means more, more problems on every level, and it means less freedom for you. So we have, to, we have to fight to reverse this, and we have to recognize that as important as all the other issues are that I mentioned at the beginning of this show and the many issues that I didn't even mention, the most important issue right now, friends, is the coming insolvency of the United States and the fact that we are not on any kind of track to fix it. And we are, I mean, we are in very, very dire straits. So individually, I try to always bring it down to the individual. What should they do beyond advocating in the most forceful man manner possible, polite yet forceful, uh, to your elected officials and to people that you might be able to have contact with that are running for federal office. You know, you need to start thinking very seriously about accumulating tangible assets that are not, uh, that are going to go up in price and value, but in price in an inflationary scenario. And of course, people immediately start talking about gold and silver. Be very careful about that. Be very careful about who you trust, about uh, your strategy there. That, that's worth its own show, uh, which we'll have in not too long from now, about uh, 
ideas, different theories, different ways of thinking about accumulating precious metals as a hedge. But for many of us don't have the resources to really buy a $2,000 gold piece right now. But, you know, you can make some smart purchases of items that are going to be valuable to somebody that you can barter with, that you can use yourself. And you need to start thinking that way. You need to also be thinking about disruption of services, disruption of the grid, disruption of the web, because monetary instability leads to other kinds of instability. Did I mention the Weimar Republic? Again, I referred to it earlier. Get out of debt if you can, but start coming up with a plan from wherever you are. Take the next step and uh, uh, and don't blow this off. The government debt is not money we owe to ourselves, quote unquote. Government debt is very serious when it gets to this point with all of the other factors, all of the other external and internal threats to the United States. It just magnifies the fact that the biggest threat to the United States right now, the biggest issue we are facing is this massive government deficit compounding the debt uh, like it has never been before and a growing reluctance that will increase uh, people wanting to fund it uh, in the investment class. My name is Lou Moore and this show is the Hour of Decision on News for America at newsforamerica.org. We'll talk to you later.